Welcome to Wayward Muse, the podcast that takes you on a journey through drinks. I'm your host, Stephen. As a thank you to all of our listeners, we are offering a free set of Carico shakers and some Wayward Muse swag. All you need to do is share this podcast on social media. If you want more chances to win this custom offering, subscribe, like, and comment on your podcast player of choice. Make sure to tag us for a chance to win this essential bar tools and merch kit. And as always, 10% off the store for using code Listen to Your Muse on our website, yourwaywardmuse.com. This episode is brought to you by Salsa Matcha by Chef Rishi. Salsa Matcha is the nutty, do-anything sauce you didn't know you needed. It hails from the state of Veracruz in Mexico. It'll completely shake up your taste buds and your cooking. Brighten up your dishes with three different expressions of this must-have flavorful product. Personally, I put it on everything. And I mean everything. Have it delivered anywhere in the U.S. Just go to yourwaywardmuse.com slash matcha by Rishi. Thank you for joining Wayward Muse. Uh, we have Aaron Polsky on. If you don't know, you should know that he has started the brand Live Wired Drinks, a new way to focus and highlight on bartenders' skill and craft through canned beverages. Aaron, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing very well, sir. So talk to people about what Live Wired Drinks are, if they may not know or <laughs> haven't been familiar with the brand. Live Wired essentially works as a record label. So we have uh, our bartenders or the, the talent, if you will. And there's some of the most well-known names in bartending around the world. And we take their better known drinks or drinks that they want to put out or drinks that they're very proud of. And we put them into either can or bottle format, sell them to you know the entirety of the United States and pay the bartenders a royalty per unit sold. So essentially it functions as a record label. We, you know, it's intended to not only be a platform through which the bartenders can reach more people and scale their craft, but it also exists as a way for them to, you know, really have a stable, scalable income. That might be a very new sort of format to try and jump onto. How have the bartenders reacted to having this different style of platform? I mean, it's been great across the board. It's obviously something very new. Uh, so there are lots of questions, but yeah, the, the reception has been great. And uh, it's been a pleasure working with with all of them so far. And I'm very excited to roll out the, the product, the new SKUs that we've got on deck. That's exciting. Did you want to talk about anyone in particular? Well, let's see, who can we, can we talk about? <laughs> You know, yeah, I, I, mean, I can talk about the ones that are out already. Uh, so Joey Bernardo, who uh, managed, most recently managed Harp and Stone uh, before COVID closed it, he had a drink there called the Honeydew Collins. And it was a huge seller. It was most people's favorite or, you know, top three drink there. And it was gin, honeydew, lime leaf, coconut, and elderflower. And we managed to capture that in a can. Uh, and it's been doing great. We actually are launching it in Texas this week. Oh, that's very exciting. That's a huge market for you to jump into. Yeah, totally. Could you, could you talk about a little bit of the differences between, let's say, sitting down at a bar and enjoying the, the Honeydew Collins and what you might have to do to put that into a can or a bottle? Yeah, definitely. So <clears throat> in a bar, the Honeydew Collins looks very much like it's made of juices <laughs> uh, because it is, right? We've got 
honeydew. We've got coconut cream. Uh, we use St. Germain at the bar. It was, I believe it was aviation gin um, and lime juice. And then lime leaves muddled in there. What we do for the cocktail is work with this incredible flavor um, and fragrance company called Jibadon. And they make us all of the things I just mentioned, not the gin, not the spirits, but they make us the elderflower, the honeydew, the coconut, the lime leaves in order in order to provide us ingredients so we can put into a can without any sort of like sediment dropping out, any sort of discoloration, off flavors, anything that'll happen when you take fresh juice and put it into a canned product, ship it around the country at room temp, you know, you're going to lose a lot of flavor and quality. So what we wanted to do was really capture those flavors and make them last. Um, and so Shibadan made us these natural, natural flavors and extracts. Um, for the lime juice, instead of using fresh juices, for the reason I just mentioned, we use organic acids that provide that profile of acidity. And it's a blend that we make to, to really capture lime. And then, you know, as in, in the one at the bar, uh, we used sugar and we use sugar here too. The end result is a very clear, clean looking liquid, right? It's, it looks like soda water or it looks like, you know, maybe a little bit more viscosity than soda water. It looks like Sprite. You know, it's it's great for that reason. Anytime you introduce sediment, carbonation is basically diminished. The sediment basically provides nucleation points for the carbonation to escape. So like you can keep it in the can, but once you open it, you're going to get a lot of fizzing. You're going to get a very quick loss of carbonation. So by offering this very clean product, uh, we're able to, you know, make a drink where the carbonation lasts all the way through the drink. Well, that's really impressive just to kind of even consider to take a fully fledged, fully developed cocktail and find a way to still represent it. The amount of labor and love that goes into that process is really impressive. Thanks. It's a lot of fun. Uh, it's, you know, a whole new toolkit for us as bartenders to work with. We get to work with a lot of incredible suppliers. Where did your inspiration for this idea come from? I've been working on this for about eight years or so. I guess like before we launched a year, almost a year ago, I'd been working on it for about seven years. I went to school for music business, my major at NYU. And we, and, and I, you know, during school, I started working in restaurants. I started bartending and I really fell in love with that. Pretty early on, you know, when I started sort of ascending through the ranks and and getting press and doing competitions and coming into my own, I had this thought of this needs to be scaled. Like, why has nobody put their original cocktails into cans? And that's sort of where that music business thing came in, because if you look at every other creative profession, music, movies, books, you know, start with those they're all scalable and they're all very much royalty based in a way, or at least revenue tied to sales. And bartending's not like that, right? I mean, you create something that's creative, right? It's not purely functional to make, for example, honeydew Collins, right? You can have a gin and tonic, you can have a shot of whiskey. It's, you know, we, we make it because it's creative and it's fun and it's fun for us and it's fun for the guests. But then the bar owner reaps the profits of that. And even so, even if you owned your own bar, you're at that point limited to just, you know, making that money in your bar. And it's like so many things have been so many scientific breakthroughs have happened in the world of food 
that like canning a cocktail and having it taste fresh in my mind did not seem like an impossible task. Like the food science is out there. It's just how do you interface that with that sort of like integrity of a, a drink creator or a food creator, right? So it's like Kraft puts out however many types of mac and cheese or whatever, or, you know, Tropicana puts out all of these different juices, right? But that's like corporate created, mm-hmm. you know, by corporate scientists who like, that's their job. They probably ascended into that job from another position. It's not like somebody who started in the world of making things that taste good, like a chef or like a bartender, and then decided, let's work with food science to bring my vision to life. It's very much like this is a product we want on the market. How do we make it? So, you know, I think what we're doing is rare because we have the food science on our side and we have the bartenders on our side. So we know that like we won't put anything out that's not like up to bartender snuff. But we also know that if there's ever a question of how do we do something, we have Jividan helping us. We have our distillery helping us. We have, you know, every component of the supply chain helping. So anyway, very long tangent, but that's when I started working on it. I made progress in fits and starts. I was working on it with a, with a couple of other folks. We were going to do like our own thing. And that's sort of like everybody kind of went their own way, including me. And I was managing Harvard and Stone when I moved to shortly after moving to LA. And I, I worked there for three and a half years. And when I decided to leave hand in hand with that was deciding that I would get Livewire off the ground. Finally after all these years. So initially it was just going to be like my cocktail company, right? With my cocktails, the same way that Julie Reiner has social hour in the same way that Charles Jolie has craft house. And I kind of had this light bulb moment when I understood the power of making it this record label model that assembles a team of elite bartenders. And I mean, elite, like elite athletes, not like Hollywood elite, by the way. Um, <laughs> I mean, the vision that I had in my head is I, I kind of like had like the Avengers assemble kind of yeah, idea yeah, yeah. in my head, yeah. every different style of bartender. I'd be interesting to try and pair off different cities with different superheroes for bartender <laughs> styles. That'd be interesting. Yeah. So, I mean, that's basically what's happening. So, yeah, we, we assembled our Avengers and um, I just realized the power of that, right? Like we could create a platform for bartenders to, to experience this next level of, not even next level, but additional level of success in the CPG market. So I shifted it from being the Aaron Polsky show to the record label. And that was September of 2019 is like when that sort of all came to fruition, when the name finally became established as Livewire, there were a couple of other contenders. Um, And then it sort of turned into raising money and nailing down our supply chain. That's quite a journey. I am always really impressed whenever I go to your website, which before doing this, I've been on quite a few times. I like the overall concept and the way that you've tied the brand very tightly together. So you get a very like cohesive experience of, oh, this does have an artistic and a a musical feeling to what would usually just be canned drinks. Could you talk to me a little bit about that process of developing the brand into a fully cohesive idea? 
Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned that because uh, in my mind, the goal was always to have the brand take back seat to the bartender in the same way that when you go to a record store, you go there to buy a Led Zeppelin record, not to buy an Atlantic Records album. Mm -hmm. But Atlantic Records lives in a little square on the album to tell you this has been vetted by a team of people who have the kind of taste of music that you like, right? Third Man Records, same thing. Death Row Records, same thing. But I'm, I like that you see this cohesion. In my mind, when you start a brand and when you establish a brand, you're establishing a feeling and you're establishing an alignment point for a consumer. So let's take two very simple commodity brands, right? Starbucks and Dunkin' Donuts. They both sell coffee. There are slightly different price points, but they're both everywhere. They both have branded cup, right? And so when you go to one or the other and you carry that branded cup out into the world, you're doing that partially with that intention, right? Because like there'll be some people who like wouldn't be caught dead with Starbucks, right? They're like, oh, I only drink third wave coffee. There are some people that are like, wouldn't be caught dead with whatever brand, right? But so you buy that, you make that decision to show people I'm a Dunkin' Donuts person, which means, yeah, sure, it tastes good, but like I don't put I don't put too much stock into it. I don't put too much money into it. It's it's simple. They're there for me. I'm a working man. Starbucks is when they came out, they purported to have a more authentic coffee drinking experience, right? They it was more Italian in their sort of like pitch. Obviously, the brand has very much evolved since then, but you are also making a statement with that Starbucks cup, right? Is that you like to treat yourself is probably, in, in, you know, something you're putting out there, right? They're known for their dressed up takes on coffee, the Frappuccinos, all that. So, mm -hmm. you know, with Livewire, I wanted to sort of give that same opportunity to a consumer to say something about themselves, right? There's so many brands in the world, especially new and emerging and, you know, price similar to ours where it's a very generic image. So like Cutwater is paints a much broader stroke than we do, right? But it's several variants of gin and tonic, of vodka soda, of margarita. You know, that's sort of what they sell, like recess CBD drink, right? It sells a very wellness-oriented, pastel color cursive lifestyle. We sell like rock and roll. I think that in LA for every single like wellness person, there's a tattooed, you know, leather vest wearing nihilist who <laughs> might be in a band and has like a record collection and a good chance they smoke cigarettes. We're there for them. And it's not like it was ever contrived. I wasn't like, let's appeal to these people. This is me, mm -hmm. you know? And for me, I was just leaning into like what I wanted the, the brand to be. And so ultimately, the name is part of it. The actual logo is part of it. What I wanted to convey was that like dangerous rock and roll energy of somebody like an Axl Rose or a Joan Jett or an Alison Mossart or like one of these people where you're like, ah, this person is like captivating, but also I'm afraid to touch them, right? Like a live wire. There it so, is. I was wondering when we would get to, and then that's like where that inspiration of the name came from. And I, I really dig that. Yeah, so that's that's uh, the branding. Oh, so and so you asked about like how how does the cohesion happen? The people who are picked to be on Livewire are fit within a certain image. Again, same as a record label, right? Like you're gonna mm -hmm. pick people who appeal to your audience, and so everybody on there is a badass, somebody you want to party with, usually heavily tattooed, you know, like and and that's not entirely what we do, but 
you know, that was sort of like, there are a lot of very great bartenders in the world who are a lot more clean cut <laughs> than our people. And for the most part, that's just not the, that's just not the fit that we're looking for. Like we want the rough and tumbles, the people who will last you at a party, except for me. Now I'm old. I'll, I'll go to sleep at like 1130. There must have been a lot of legal hurdles for you to get a, a canned liquor concept off of the ground in just one state, let alone, I think you're up to over 10, right? Different states that you're distributing to. Uh, we sell online to most states in the U.S., but our distribution is currently in four. Uh, California, New York, New Jersey, and Texas. With that sort of, you can ship though in a lot of different places. Legally, have there been some weird things or hurdles that you have to jump through or was that process really straightforward? Um, luckily, we have a lot of partners who have that stuff figured out. So our fulfillers ship to the states that they individually can ship to and they sort of like uh, take it upon themselves to navigate that, uh, which is great. As far as getting distribution in the other states, yeah, so our distributors, for the most part, do the compliance legwork in the individual markets. Um, that's not to say there's not, there aren't legal uh, problems to solve. Those, for the most part, on our end, have been like at a corporate level. So, you know, we have our, our own counsel for that. Um, and then, you know, I would say the most interesting legal sort of project to tackle was the bartender contract. You know, this is something that's never been done. That took a lot of work in order to establish something that is off the bat fair. Uh, when, again, having studied the music business and the history thereof, there are notoriously unfair contracts in the history of the music business. I really believe in being, you know, if you start a business, it's on you to run it ethically. And so for me, it was the, the document I wanted to present to the bartenders was one that I wanted them to say, this is cool. Yeah. I mean, let's look at this and this and this, but like, I didn't want them to feel like they were getting global and mm. that they had to negotiate from that position. So creating the base template for that took quite a bit of time. That was in interesting and a lot of late nights on my end staring at staring at word. But, <laughs> you know, well, I can only I, imagine you're you're creating something brand new. Right. But it's interesting, too, that you've been able to fuse these different paths of your life. I would like to talk about the differences between Los Angeles bartending when you were managing a place there and your time in New York. L.A.'s bartending scene has changed a lot since I moved out here. But, you know, New York is definitely a harder market. I think that if you look at, at most, I mean, COVID exclusive, right? Because that changed everything. But up through 2019, if you looked at sort of the job landscape and where our managers were, there was a lot of very clear upward mobility. Like you would be a bar lead and then you would be a bar manager and then you would like run a group or run several bars or open your own bar. And you would see that quite a bit. And it's not like you were making crazy amounts of money, but it, you know, you would still like make a little bit more every time. Whereas in New York, like you see, I feel like it's way harder to get by. Like you see these prominent bartenders who have been names for 
eight, 10, 12, 15 years. And they're like still pulling shifts at like whatever bar. And you're like, how are you 15 years older than me? When I was coming up, you were a legend. You've opened your own bar. Like, how do you keep finding yourself in this position where you're like picking up random shifts? And so that to me was like, it's hard to watch. And granted, that doesn't happen with everybody. And there are definitely some exceptions who have like open bars or open bar groups or like really have found their place. But a lot of it is this like cycle that you see. And I'm sure that part of that has to do with like very expensive real estate. You know, the margins and bars are even slimmer there than they are here. And so like you can't, it's not, you can't, it's harder to pay someone what they're worth in the position of like a very experienced bar director in New York. If like your spot only holds 50 or a hundred people. Yeah. I could see that being a, a huge sticking point for negotiating salaries. When I was asked, it was definitely one of those things where it's like, we just don't, you just don't have the space. I'm happy to keep bartending here every once in a while, but it just isn't going to work out because it doesn't scale. And that became even more of an issue now as things have been truncated size-wise, if you're even able to stay open. It'll be interesting to see how the landscape shifts and it adjusts as people begin to become vaccinated. And speaking of that, uh, from your insider out, outsider in perspective, both creating a to-go beverage platform that suits the times very well as they are now and having been a bar manager before, what do you think needs to change about the industry to be successful in the upcoming year? And what do you think needs to stay the same? You know, I think that to go is is here to stay. And I think that's a good thing. I also think that like really capitalizing upon that, you know, the, the bars that, so there's a bar out here called Thunderbolt, great spot. And they had become sort of like, a new industry spot for us. Um, I don't think they were even open a year before before COVID. Um, maybe it was just six months, but they were doing really well. And then COVID hit and they like almost immediately started canning their own drinks. Like they invested, I think it's two grand in like a can steamer and started canning their own drinks. But more importantly than that, because a lot of people are doing that, they started, they turned their bar into like a boutique liquor and wine shop. And Claire Sprouse in New York did the same thing. And that to me is so smart because if you love Thunderbolt and you love going there for the drinks and you love going there for the glass of wine and to have some food, why not make that place that you already trust to be your curator, your wine shop. And like I, so I, there's a wine bar by me called Tabula Rasa that like I used to go to all the time and I love their taste in wine and they're a bottle shop. And like they very smartly, they did the same thing. They sell a very wide range of wines. They have a very strong social media presence and they're like, they blast out what they sell. And like, to me, you know, mid pandemic, 12 bucks a bottle was my limit. Right. And they had a bunch of offerings at that price point. And it was great to know that like, this is not the same as going to a chain supermarket and grabbing a bottle of very generic or like best case scenario, a mass market established old world wine brand. Right. Mm -hmm. This is like they're going to give me some dope natural wine that I won't be able to find anywhere else. Or they'll be able to give me this amazing like whatever chocolatey, you know, but it's like really capitalizing upon the trust your consumers have in you and becoming their one stop shop is going to be like the success. And when you go back to being just a bar, being able to sell, you know, a bottle of wine for them to take home or like, I mean, beer bars have been doing that for a year with Growler. But like now you can be like, 
you know, they can say, oh, I want this bottle of Sauvignon Blanc for the weekend or, oh, I want, you know, whatever. And like, I think capitalizing on that is going to be very important. I think for everybody upping your portable food game, people have like gotten uh, very used to takeout and delivery from their favorite restaurants, many of which had never offered it. And I don't think they're going to want to let that revenue channel go away and figuring out how do we take this delicious food that we've always plated and also find an alternate arrangement to pack it and hopefully do it in a way that's not excessively using single-use plastic, right? So I think that that's really going to be the key to success. And then once everything's back in full swing, we're going to have busy bars again, you know, just probably streamlining drink service, which I think a lot of bars have done for those times when they did reopen, but only had to keep minimal staff because of labor costs. Like they had to figure out ways of like, how do we do this really fast? So Mm -hmm. we're in a terrible time now and lots of people are out of work and lots of bars and restaurants have closed or are on the verge of closing. But at the same time, the ones that are still in business and the ones that are like surviving it's only up from here. And like, same here, right? Like yeah. I, my first cans came off the line on March 3rd, 2020. That um, is insane. <laughs> that's yeah. 10 days before all the wildness happened. Yeah. And so our off-premise was, or our on-premise sales were basically gone with the exception of like two or three places, or I mean, they were never there, right? The possibility yeah. of them was gone. You know, I think the optimism for me of like, this is, I've got my eyes on the prize. I know what I want to do. We're so far from saturating the off-premise market that like, we just will continue to work on that, recognizing that right now is the hardest, that it's good. Well, maybe I don't want to, I don't want to speak too much, but this is- Knock on wood. Yeah, knock on wood. This is one of the hardest uh, economies the world has ever faced. So as things open back up, things will be better and easier. Well, those are some great nuggets of advice in there. And I'm sure people will zoom back to double check and make sure they got all those ideas down. Well, Aaron, thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you on Wayward Muse. Uh, Just so people have a better chance, could you uh, tell us the best place to find your product? Yeah, uh, the absolute best place is to go to livewiredrinks.com. We have a store locator there, so you can just pop your zip code in. If you want to order them online, you can do that there as well.